Hello and welcome to another episode of The Trading Desk. My name is Joshua Thanos and I'm your host today. Today I have a very familiar guest, a a guy, if you listened just two weeks ago, you heard his voice and his name is Brian Govberg. Thanks for having me back. Not a problem, man. I think we did did a great podcast on Patek Philippe uh, a few weeks ago and uh, we uh, we got some really, really good feedback on that. So uh, we wanted to pick up on a topic that we kind of discussed a little bit uh, during that podcast, and that was uh, something called Hidden Gem Watches. That's what we decided to uh, to name it. So we'll go ahead and have that topic, and we'll discuss that topic today. But before we do that, let's go ahead and do our customary wrist check. Uh, Brian, you wearing a watch today? I am wearing a watch today. I am wearing a 5065 Patek Philippe. So oh. uh, this is a older Patek Philippe Aquanaut. It's one of the original iterations of the watch. What really drew me to the watch itself was the size. At 38 millimeters, it just fit my wrist particularly well. Um, and I just love the texture of the dial and the strap. It's you know extremely different than the current iterations of the watch. Um, and I also like that you have the ability to change the colors of the straps. The 5065 strap is the same strap that is on a ladies luce. So you pretty much have available to you all of the ladies luce strap colors uh, for the watch. Oh, wow. Great. So that's, this is a a vintage Aquanaut. That's awesome, man. That's uh, that, that might be a hidden gem. It could be. (laughs) I I think people know about it now though. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You've been talking about it for a while. I know that. So, all right, cool. So, uh, well, on my wrist is a watch that would certainly I would consider a hidden gem, and, and that is one of the, the watches that we want to talk about today, and that's my my Panerai PAM002. This is an A serial, so it's a, a 1997. This would be post-Vendome as opposed to pre-Vendome. It's the first year that the Vendome Group or Richemont um, was in ownership of uh, of Panerai. Uh, it's uh, uh, manual wind, 44-millimeter stainless steel Panerai with, uh, it's just time only, no sub-seconds, nothing else on the dial, tritium dial as well, uh, which is something we'll discuss a little bit later. Uh, it's an it's a modified ETA 6497 movement, so basically they, they were buying ETA movements, ETA and Valjoux movements, Panerai was up until recently when they switched basically all in-house uh, and were, um, you know, just finishing them. They were inscribing the word Panerai on some of the bridges and whatnot, but uh, but yeah, so this is a hardy watch. I have a great story behind it. I don't know. Have, have I ever told you the story of my uh, Pam 002? No. Okay, so uh, I'll tell you. So this is a watch that um, I uh, a friend of mine owns a hotel in Jamaica in the Grill, and uh, if you're familiar with the area, it's Seven Mile Beach. So his family's owned the owned the uh, the resort for a long time, and and uh, he runs it and lives on the resort. So I went to go visit visit him and uh, take a nice vacation with my wife. And uh, he told me, he's like, hey, you know, since you're coming down here, I know you're a Panerai guy. Uh, one of uh, my friends here was diving off the in, in, in the ocean here um, and found this uh, a watch, a Panerai, a while back. It must have been years before that. He goes, it's just been sitting in a, um, in a drawer. He gave it to me. It's been sitting in a drawer. I don't even know if it's real. So why don't you take a look at it? And if you want it, if, you, if it is real and you want it, then, you know, make me an offer and you can buy it. I said, okay, great. So I show up. Uh, place is beautiful, serene beach. If you haven't been Seven Mile Beach in the Grill, I would absolutely recommend it. One of my favorite places on the planet. But uh, I uh, got my hands on the watch, and um, the watch is beat the shit. It is it, as bad as it gets. Uh, you know, it's it looks like it's it looks like it was found in the ocean. Um, dial's been faded. 
uh, you know, water damage all, uh, you know, the whole nine. Um, so I got a hold of the watch, was able to uh, unscrew the case back, um, inspected it, and determined that it was an authentic watch and which model it was. It was a 002. So, but it wasn't running. The the uh, the movement was rusted. Um, him and I worked out a, a deal on it, bought it for a few hundred dollars, brought it back, and actually gave it to Israel here at our at our um, uh, at Godberg's, and he found someone to refurbish the watch. So that's so it's now it's running. They were able to salvage most of the most of the movement, um, and uh, yeah, it's been that that was probably about four probably four years ago now. So it was. You should, uh, you should read out the serial number to all the all the viewers. Maybe the uh, original owners listening. You know what? If uh, <laughs> if the original owner reached out to me and, and could prove that it was, I would actually gladly hand that watch back to him. Um, even though I did put some money into it, you know, getting it refurbished and all that. But uh, but yeah, so that's that's how I got the that's how I got that watch. Got my hands on it, and uh, that's awesome. I love it. Yeah, man, it's one of many. It's always fun. It's a good story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, now every story is just like, yeah, hey, you know, I. Uh, I saw this watch. I lusted after it for about 30 minutes. I decided just to bite on a whim. And then I found out, did all the research about what the watch was and, and why I should have bought it after I bought it. That's, that's, that's kind of my, yeah. uh, my process. I'm very impulsive when it comes to that stuff, but yeah, so that's on the wrist. Pam 002, a serial stainless seal, 44 millimeter, uh, manual wine, which actually now it's funny. All my, all my Panerai's are all manual wine Panerai's basically 44 millimeter manual wine Panerai's. That's, that's kind of, my wheelhouse in terms of Panerai. I love Panerai, but I, I really, the, the, um, the automatic ones don't do it for me. Uh, there's, they have the, like the Valju wobble that they, that Panerai or, uh, uh, OJ Watley likes to call it. Uh, not my thing. It's also, those cases are a little bit thicker. So turns out I have, I think six Panerai's and they're all manual wine pieces. So. Oh, that's but, awesome. Uh, yeah, man. So that's what I got on the wrist. So Brian, Let's get down to business today. Gems. Yes, today we're going to talk about hidden gems. So let's let's preface it with a uh, a callback to our previous show and the kind of the reason why we thought about this, and that was a watch that you were mentioning, and I think it was just kind of a spur of the moment thing. I don't think we prepared to talk about this model, but uh, what was it? A seventy one fifty? Is that right? It was the seven. Yeah, it was the seventy one fifty Paddock Philippe. So so right now Paddock is just insane in terms of uh, demand. Uh, every model that you know, people seem to, any model that seems desirable just is going insane in value, shooting up above their retails. You can't get that. It's, it's a race to the top, right? In terms of how much you can pay for the watch. So when we find a model from a brand like that, that uh, should be, you know, wearable, then we can call it, it, and should be, you know, collectible, but no one's looking at it. We can call it a hidden gem. And that's kind of what the 7150 is. Yeah. Yeah. No. So the 7150 you know, I consider it a hidden gem simply because it's actually a ladies' watch. Um, but Patek Philippe, many years back, decided that they were going to make some really special, complicated ladies' pieces and focus on the female collector, which was a really big shift. And when I first saw the watch at Basel World, I was like, "Oh my god, I love this watch! Like, this would be a watch that I think a guy would buy." And you know, really, the it, it had pump pushers and just the overall layout of the dial was fantastic. And um, you know, it had a diamond bezel and it was considered a ladies watch. So it was one of those pieces where you knew, um, you know, that, that male collectors weren't necessarily going to buy the piece, but as gem set watches have become more popular over the last several years. And, you know, one of the reasons being is just that how collectible Rolex gem set watches are. And then this right. sort of transitioned into gem set Nautiluses becoming ultra collectible. 
more guys are just open to gem set pieces. And, you know, we talked about that this has a little bit to do with, you know, watches, you know, experiencing hype on social media. But, you know, fast forward, it's just a fantastic watch. And it's a watch that I was saying that I honestly would wear. And I would love it to see uh, them to come back uh, out with it, actually with a non-diamond bezel for, you know, for guys to buy. Right. So, well, basically, so it's marketed to women. But, I mean, the watch itself, it's a 38 millimeter pump pusher chrono. So, I mean, it's... It is uh, the same size as many uh, chronos that exist, the many vintage chronos that men wear. So the size is right. The watch has a bit of an aggressive look too based on the dial configuration. It's not like super elegant. It's actually uh, somewhat sporty in some ways. But then I think the diamond bezel is what caused Paddock to say, hey, we need to market this towards women. But it's, yeah, like you said, you know, diamond, you see the, the rainbow Daytona, First of all, I don't know if I, I mean, I'm sure there's women who are wearing this, but many men are wearing rainbow Daytonas and this is as gem set as it gets, right? And it's a, a highly, highly collectible watch. So, you know, there is certainly a huge market for gem set watches for men to wear. And and that's one of the reasons, like you said, the 7150 is a hidden gem. So that's that's what started off this conversation. So we racked our brains and we thought, hey, you know, these are this is something we do on a daily basis. We're always looking at watches, looking for looking for what's the next trend, right? Because that's I mean, we we're speculative buyers. So if we can get ahead of a trend, then we can you know profit from it. We can do better from that. So that is always our our mentality is forward thinking, anyways. So we said, hey, let's talk about watches that we think are hidden gems. So these are going to be undervalued watches, watches that people aren't paying attention to, but. Um, are and are going to be essentially underpriced for what they are, right? It, it, would that would that make sense? Yeah, I think you know, you know, you can say you can look at it from the perspective of under underpriced for what they are, uh, watches that should be looked at uh, that aren't, or just things that I think that if you're in the the watch community or watch collector base, just watches that not a lot of collectors may have but they would say sure. wow like that's a really cool piece and it and it's and, and it's interesting and unique yeah absolutely so so we we each came up with a, a a little list so let's uh let's start here what so there's one watch that uh or one uh brand of watch that we both agreed on i think it was like the first thing we talked about and you and i've talked about it before so let's start with that and that would be 1990s uh roger dubuis watches right yeah so you know i'm a big fan of of early dubuis uh, I I own a Sympathy by Retro Perpetual myself. Mm-hmm. You know the I'd say it's early debut from the formation of the brand, and then you know maybe let's call it pre Rishma uh, would be sure. a, a good time to sort of end. But you know Roger Dubuis was a prolific watchmaker. He worked for many manufacturers. He was a high complications watchmaker for Patek Philippe, and then in 1995, the brand itself um, formed. Formed, yeah, with Carlos Diaz. Him and Carlos Diaz, uh, you know, created Roger Dubuis as a brand. Exactly, and you know, and what was so special about this? What was this brand? Is that you know, um, Roger Dubuis? You know, he was a like a true classical watchmaker. And Carlos Diaz, you know, had this big personality. So it was it was just a really interesting combination of two people. And right. the first watches that they came out with were the homage line and the sympathy line. The homage line being, you know, I think the the most popularized watches are their their two register chronos. 
um, which have a similar look and feel to, um, you know, not necessarily a similar look and feel, but just, you know, you can you can sort of see the the design inspiration that would have come from him working at Patek Philippe. Right. More like Kala Travel, like because they're round cases and whatnot, right? Exactly. So, so the homage line was, I mean, it, it was basically an elegant version or a more popularized version. And this, it's actually SJX um, does an, has an unbelievable article on just old Roger Dubois. And right. I, I recommend everybody go and take a look at it. But he really just talks about how uh, a lot of the inspiration from these watches came from his time at Patek Philippe. And I just, I think the watches are incredibly well made. Uh, they're all Geneva Seal Hallmarked. And for a long time, there was just tremendous value in these pieces. You could pick them up for little to nothing. Um, and, you know, even just a couple of years ago, you could get uh, buy retrograde perpetual chronos for, let's call it $20,000. You know, they, you know, yeah. and, and relative to what other brands were charging for the, you know, comparable movement. And I think a lot of collectors now have, have honestly taken a look at, at these pieces. They've become more collectible. They're inherently scarce. And, um, you know, I have a love for them. You have a love for them. And I just, I, I still look at them as hidden gems. I still think that there's a lot of legs that the brand has uh, in terms of the, the collectability of these pieces. I think 1990s in general, a lot of amazing watches were produced that often go overlooked. Yeah, without a doubt. I agree with you 100%. So so the brand, again, founded in 1995. So uh, I'd say the most, if we're looking at the brand itself in terms of what is the most collectible, um, and uh, you're going to be looking, I think, Sympathy Case, just because it's so distinct, right? The homage is nice, but it was more, it's it's less recognizable, right? When, when somebody sees, especially a watch guy, right? Not everybody knows Roger Dubuis, but if if somebody like you or me sees a, a sympathy case, we know what it is from uh, within an instant, right? So it's very recognizable. Um, they're going to be thin, very wearable, uh, 37, 40 millimeter cases, but, you know, uh, more of a square case. So it's going to wear a little bit larger, but it's thin. So it's not going to be something that's going to be overbearing. And I think that the, the most collectible, so if somebody now is listening and saying, hey, you know, let me look into these brands and let me see what the most collectible sympathy case is, it's going to be uh, the ones with the shaped crystals, correct? Right? And they only they only did that for three years because they were so unbelievably difficult to make. So from ninety five to ninety eight, you were getting shaped crystals. After that, you were just they decided, hey, listen, we're gonna do the shaped case and we're gonna do round crystals. The, the watches are still beautiful, and handsome. The movements are the same caliber, and they're gonna be super well finished. But if you're looking for the most collectible of something that is essentially a hidden gem, I think that's gonna be the watch. The uh, the shaped uh, shaped crystal. And, and really any movement because they, they didn't, it wasn't like they said, all right, well, our time only is going to be an entry level movement. No, all the movements were at, or they were all Geneva seals. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. No. So as it stands right now, I mean, the, the homage line actually performs better. I would say in terms of the overall, you know, I guess collectability is the wrong word. It's just, it appeals to a broader audience. So, cause it's a more classical style of watch. So I think that that's one of the reasons why more collectors focus on that piece. But, you know, again, the sympathy itself just became the hallmark case of the brand. No different than Nautilus became recognizable for Paddock or, sure, you know, uh, the Royal Oak became recognizable for AP. So 
you know, I, I think the watches themselves are, are absolutely beautiful. When the watches came out, they were extremely fresh. The entire brand took off um, and, you know, it was off to the races. Yeah, I mean, it, I think early Dubuis has uh, like echoes the same kind of sentiments that maybe like a Jorn has, right? So it's, you know, they were he was making watches that were what he wanted to make. They weren't, so they had a little funk to them, right? So they were super old school watchmaking, but the dials were so funky. And you have some of these, uh, the Arabic numerals with large, uh, you know, large markers and just across the board, you're having things that were, it, it almost seemed like there was a sense of humor, right? So it was high horology in terms of the watchmaking, but in the delivery, there was some just, you know, it was very, it was artistic, I guess. That's the word I'm looking for, right? So it was highly artistic. Whereas when you want to compare it to like a brand like Paddock, which is, Paddock is undeniable, but you rarely see, uh, get the feeling of an artistic watch. You feel like you're getting something very old world, but there's not a lot of, it doesn't feel artisanal, right? Whereas that's what you're getting with an early Roger Dubuis, right? Yeah, no, exactly. So, you know, you, they wanted to create watches that, you know, they didn't want to just copy the other brands that were out there. They didn't want to right. build a new Patek Philippe. So, you know, I would say that there was traditional watchmaking involved, which is, you know, highly complicated complications with just crazy design. And that's what yeah. they, they became known for. So, Absolutely. So, yeah, so that's, that's, that's something that we always, I mean, this one was an easy one to pick. I think that you and I we've talked about this many times over the over the years that we've known each other and and I think we both agree and we geek out, geek out on those watches and and you know I have yet to purchase myself one uh, I've had many opportunities I just didn't I, I I haven't been able to pull the trigger I know you have so uh, I think possibly my next uh, my next purchase might be one of these you know I know we have one on the website now a uh, uh, forty millimeter no so we actually have we actually have an S thirty seven. Or, oh, okay, or, S37. or we did, I'm not sure if it's still there. Um, but it was, a so S37 was the meaning 37 millimeter size sympathy. Um, uh -huh. it has the shaped crystal white gold case, perpetual calendar. And one of the most special parts of these watches, and you know, again, it's, you can't always get them with the full box set, but the box sets that these watches came with were just spectacular. Oh. It came with the, uh, all the certifications handwritten documentation from the watchmakers that were working on the watches, extra case backs, just... Uh, well, there's literally, uh, in some of these, there's a Polaroid of the of the watch. Yes, there that is. That has been printed and put... So, the, so yeah, no, I, okay, so I know the one you were mentioning. Tim did a video on it. That watch is... I've seen... I've watched that video so many times, the S37, uh, the Perpetual. So that one is is long gone sold, actually. So the, the only one that we have right now is we have an S40 in Rose, but... I mean, the watches, so that's a watch that we have listed at $8,450. So think about that. So for less than $10,000, you can get an early vintage uh, Roger Bui hand-finished from start to finish, um, full set box and papers. This one's uh, actually a 2004. So I think Richemont took over. They, they bought the brand, what, 2008. So it's pre-Richemont. So this has... Like I think they would call it a second generation box set. It still has a lot of the documentation, but it's a little bit upgraded. The first box sets were just felt like they were like old world. This this was when they were making the transition, kind of trying to keep up with some of the um, some of the other brands and what they were creating. But it's still it's it's an unbelievable piece. But again, let's think about that. So for less than the price of a of a stainless steel no date sub, huh, you can buy. 
a hand-finished, handmade, from start to finish, uh, watch from uh, a watchmaker that at the time was was making probably 1,500 watches a year. Yeah, no, so... There, you know, the if you want, you can Google, you know, call it vintage Roger Wee box sets and see what they look like. But oh yeah, you know, it's uh, it's a cool line of watches. So yeah. I wanted so to talk we about, can't talk enough about yeah, them. Yeah, so I want to talk about a second hidden gem, which is sure a a watch that I talked about on some of my shows with Tim. Uh, it's a watch that I own myself, so you know, I I may be a little bit biased, uh, but it's the second generation overseas from Vacheron. So, oh, yeah. you know, a little bit of history, Vacheron Overseas Line was launched in the 1970s in response to the Paddock Fleet Nautilus and the Royal Oak. Well, I mean, both of these were, you know, launched in response to the Royal Oak, but, you know, I'm not going to get into the history of the Overseas Line, but fast all the way forward, in 2004, Vacheron sort of relaunched the Overseas Line. Um in a 42 millimeter case and just i just think the watches themselves are 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 beautiful they're sporty they're elegant they're a little bit bigger than the royal oaks and the nautiluses um i always love the the their integrated bracelets and if you look in the center of the links of the bracelets it's actually half of a maltese cross so it was just a super cool way of of integrating their logo into the watch itself and I'd say the reason why I consider these now to be hidden gems is what you're getting in the watch relative to the price. So, you know, when you look at sports watches nowadays, you know, you you see Royal Oaks trading at very high numbers. You see uh, Nautilus is trading at very high numbers. And then you look at, you know, the Vacheron Overseas line and it, and it doesn't get nearly as much uh credit and you know you can pick up generation two overseas whether it's the time only with a date or even the chronograph for anywhere from let's call it 10 to sixteen thousand. so these are for in-house vacheron movements you know they were they were based on jlc movements but for you know all intents and purposes we'll call them in-house vacheron movements and they just they're unbelievable watches with really high-end construction and i think that overall just the, the the view of the watch, you're going to see a lot less of these than some of the counterparts from other brands. And I've I've always loved these watches, and I think that just for the value, it's it's very hard to beat. I totally agree. Um, in fact, when the third gens were released, it was I think 2015, 2016. I was still 2016. Okay, so we, yeah, we were. It was before. Uh, it was before even Watchbox, right? It was still Watch You Want. And I remember having a conversation with Tim about that. And, and we were saying the new models were overpriced and they were over-engineered. And the second-gen models were going to end up getting like a, having like a, a bump or like a renaissance. And it never happened. And, you know, when all these other brands, like you said, the, the 15400 APs, Royal Oaks, and the, uh, the 5711s were just going to the moon, going insane. You know, we've seen Royal Oaks sell for as much as like $85,000. <coughs> Or not Royal Oak, sorry. Uh, 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 um, Nautilus. Nautilus is steel. Nautilus is selling for as much as eighty five thousand dollars, and then you have a watch that is you know should be in the, in that conversation, and it just is not getting love. So it certainly is a hidden gem. So the Chrono is a forty nine one fifty reference. Um, I think the the date only is at like forty seven hundred. Is that the is that the the reference for that watch? But if you're if you're googling at home, 
Um, yeah, I mean, if you, you type in second generation overseas, they they pretty much all come yeah. up. You know, one right. of the forty seven forty seven zero four zero is the is the time and date only, and you're getting you're you're getting like what a, a super well finished movement. You're, the design element though. Well, the, so, well, the case backs are are solid, so you can't see the movement, but they're just sure. they're workhorse movements. And you right. know, when you look at the overall elements of the watch, you had you know screw down pushers. Um, you know, I'd say as far as the chronographs go, you know, multiple levels within the dial and the registers. One of the sort of big things for me is on the chronographs, it, they had um, a dual window big D. And I just, I love the look of that. I love when you have a dual window big D and it's just super sure. legible, super readable. It's, it's almost, I mean, it's its own complication, even though you don't realize it is. And I just thought the watches were just really cool and well thought out when they transition into the new model in 2016 they you know if you look at the bezel there's eight notches or call it eight half crosses on the bezel in the second gen and they transitioned into six you know i, I like the eight better and i also sure. think that they tapered the watch a little bit too much but i mean either way again like the the most recent iteration of the watch has sapphire crystal backs, in-house movements, super cool interchangeable straps. So, you know, I think it just comes down to the design that you like. But, mm-hmm. you know, the second gen overseas, they integrated new materials. They mixed steel with titanium. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that was really cool that they did that in that, let's call it a, a, a holy trinity brand, started using these new materials in, in sports watches. So... I always thought right. they were undervalued. I think it's a great watch that everybody should be looking at. And anytime somebody asks me, like, hey, you know, what's a really cool sports watch that, like, I should be looking at that I wouldn't know to look at? I say the Vacheron Overseas Second Gen, and I also say the uh, the Brigade um, Marine line. So oh, Yeah, that's that's another one. Certainly a hidden gem. Uh, Brigade does not get a, a, a pr- nearly enough love. But, I mean, yes, yeah, so, I mean, you, I'm looking here. You can find... The, the time and date uh, versions of these second gen overseas for yeah for ten easily ten thousand dollars which I mean you can't sniff a uh, a fifty seven eleven you you can't pay the tax on t- on a fifty seven eleven purchase with ten thousand dollars so I mean it's it, it is bizarre uh, and one thing I've always loved from from the first moment I laid my eyes on one of these watches was the design of the bracelet it it is it is such a well designed and comfortable bracelet. Also, something that people don't—it's super underrated—is that every single link is removable. Yeah, no, I like mean that's there, there's that's a big deal. Yeah, so it's it's and it's like one of the other things too is hidden clasp also hidden clasp and you actually have the ability to transition. So I have the Deep Stream, which is titanium. It's so the Deep Stream Chrono, right. which is steel and titanium bezel. So it's a steel case, titanium bezel. It's got like this uh, mm-hmm. gray dial. But one of the coolest features of the watch is that. You can put it on a bracelet, croc strap, or rubber strap. So, sure. so it's very transformative, and you know that's just again. I think it's really cool because you, when you put it on a bracelet, it feels much more like a classic steel sports watch. And then when you throw it on a rubber strap, it really changes up the you know the look and feel. And you know, again, I. I you know, if you're out there and you're looking for a really cool sports watch, you should be looking at these. Another one is the is the blue dial variation. is It's probably my favorite. I'd rather have it than Deep Stream, but you know, right. it's... the blue dial chronos. I mean, so think of, again, 
Think about a, a blue dial. Like, okay, so we'll we'll compare it to say, I guess a fifty nine eighty, right? A blue dial chrono. I'd ra- from you know Paddock, what? I'd rather compare it to the Royal. I think it's more similar in appearance and functionality to the Royal Oak chrono. So, so you're talking a twenty five plus thousand dollar watch, and and you can buy a blue dial uh, Vacheron overseas for like mid teens right now. Correct. You know, it's it's crazy, and and I mean, uh, in terms of uh, service history and uh, like durability, the Vacheron's going to be more durable. I mean, I know you and I both have seen, you know, have had have sold these watches before and seen which ones have come back for service, and the Vacheron tends to uh, tends to hold up better. Than the uh, than the Royal Oak and, and I mean yeah so you're getting tremendous value. Uh, it's a watch you can be proud to wear and it's not a watch that comes to everyone's mind when they're thinking about hey let me get a stainless sport watch. Exactly and I, I like that you said proud to wear because I think that you know nowadays with sort of the hype cycle in play where everybody's looking at what somebody else is wearing and then what other people are wearing and then they're promoting watches online you end up seeing the same pieces over and over and over again like. I look at the the Vacheron overseas, like even, you know, let's call it the second gen, third gen, you know, whatever it is, just very much in line with everything else that's being produced from the other brands. So, you know, when I see, and I think that when I see somebody wearing a second gen overseas, and it's not too often, but I do see them, like it's a purposeful choice. Like, you know that it wasn't right. random, right? Like, you know that they didn't just see it on Instagram, like, wow, like I should get myself a, sec- a pre-owned second gen overseas. So I think it's like, you you know, you went down the rabbit hole of, again, cool sports watches, what's interesting, good price point. So, you know, again, my hidden gem. Without a doubt. All right. So uh, let's see what's next up in the hidden gem. So let's talk, well, let's keep it in the vein of sport watches. And this is something that, uh, I don't know if everybody would agree with me, but uh, I believe that uh, right now there's certainly hidden gems and they will be collectible in the future. And that is from a brand that I love. It's called Panerai. Um, and, uh, when I talk about hidden gems from the brand Panerai, people might look at me sideways, but I'm talking about very specific models. (laughs) So what I'm saying is right now, uh, you're seeing, uh, there's a lot of people out looking for these hidden gem type watches, right? So we've had, there's more conversations about like the Roger DeBuise and things, and people are looking for, you know, what's going to be collectible in the future. Well, I think that's that's always interjecting real quick. I think that, sure. You know, there's. When somebody says, like, when we say finding hidden gems, right, like, or what's going to be collectible in the future, I think a lot of the question comes from what's going to go up in value, right? Like, what can I buy now that's inexpensive that's going to go up? And the question comes a lot because, you know, prices are more transparent than ever, especially in watches. You can get a really good understanding of, of if I'm getting a good price, am I not getting a good price? And then what catches on, you know, so let's call it FP Journe, a success story over the last several years where uh, extremely scarce, um, the product is incredibly well made, one of the best living watchmakers. So it checked all the boxes of what's going to be, you know, highly collectible. Future but, collectible. You know, I don't yeah, think exactly. a hidden gem necessarily needs to even be something that's going to be a future collectible, right? Like, I don't look at the Vacheron overseas that we just spoke about as a watch that's going to skyrocket in value all of a sudden. I look at it simply as a watch that's gone overlooked that I think has a huge amount of value and brand, let's call it, huge amount of implied value relative to the price. 
So wearing a Vacheron value for dollars. Value for dollars. So like wearing a Vacheron overseas to me is no different than somebody wearing a 5711. So if you look at it like somebody's wearing a call it at market $60,000 watch or somebody buys a $10,000 Vacheron overseas like like you know I, I look at them like they're very much almost like call it Well they started level. off they they started their life at the same level. Unfortunately, as things have gone on in terms of uh, price point, one went one way, the other went the other way. I don't but think it's I mean, unfortunate, but the, I think the amount of the amount of uh, you know, right? The watchmaking involved. The watchmaker is putting that watch together, designing that watch. Has no, you know, they're not thinking about you know what uh, what is this going to end up selling for you know ten years from now. You know, they're just they're making the watch, Correct. right? And and there's certain amount of care that goes into. I don't think there's any less care that goes into creating an overseas than there would be a, a Nautilus. Yeah. So, but I um, just wanted to differentiate yeah. the two different paths of sure. hidden gem, where we think that there's future value, and then hidden gem, where right. it's there may not necessarily be tremendous upside, but it's a watch that people should be buying. Right. So okay. So Panerai has a this. So the Panerais I want to talk about have elements of both, in my opinion. Right, because it's all speculative, anyways. But so people are looking for for value. One thing I like to talk about Panerais, and I had this conversation with somebody yesterday who was asking me about a very expensive Panerai, right? And as much as I like Panerai, and I I, I have I think six in my collection still. Um, I I say this, <laughs> I have that's right. I have six Panerais. I have uh, one for every day, and then I can wear my my Rolex on my on Sundays. But um, uh, I the thing that I like about Panerai. Is that the brand had its heyday? It's kind of it's basically passed, and it's been in and out of favor, and it kind of fluctuates in terms of of um, of the popularity of the brand throughout the year, depending on what they what they release and kind of what people want, right? And they're they're tailoring their new watches back towards people who are, who want more reasonable sized watches, so they're not making 47, 48 millimeter submersibles anymore, things like that, uh, a little bit thinner cases and all that. But uh, but one thing that There's I like about bronze. Panerai. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh God, I, I would wish, I would hope that they would stop doing that. And the Bronzo will not be my hidden gem. Um, but one one thing that that I like about Panerai is that you could be wearing a three thousand dollar or four thousand dollar Panerai, and it and it looks the same as a twenty thousand dollar Panerai, because like a lot of people say, they all look the same, which is true in some regard. They don't all look the same to me because I'm somebody who looks at the particulars and and I know the brand inside and out, but. You can wear a four or five thousand dollar Panerai, and it's and it's no different than wearing a twenty thousand dollar Panerai, right? A more complicated piece, maybe a limited edition, whatever it may be. But uh, so the value where I see in the hidden gems are in right now looking for pre Luminova, so tritium dial Panerais. So uh, if you know the history of Panerai, you know that they their big claim to fame essentially was World War II and and shortly afterwards was creating uh, loomed paint, right? That's that's their that's where they came up with the radiomere case and the lumen uh, the luminor case. It's this is named after two paints that they have uh, two types of uh, loomed paint that they um, had patented and uh, they built essentially their entire retail brand, right, their luxury brand around that history. Um, so the early days of Panerai, so the pre-Vendome, and then uh, and shortly after. Vendome, the Vendome Group purchased their brand in uh, 1997. They were using tritium on their dials. So why do I think that this is a hidden gem? Well, because number one, it's going to limit the watches, right? So it's going to create a segment of the brand that are going to be limited. Second of all, most of these watches were worn, worn well, and sent in for service. Well, every time you send in for send these watches in for service, 
if it had a tritium dial and it, this was after, say, 2004 when they when all their watches had Luminova dials, they were swapping those dials. So the vast majority of the watches bought between, say, 1997 and 2004 and the, the time when Vendome Group owned the brand but they were still making tritium dials, those dials have been swapped out. So it creates a uh, a, a sense of rarity. They're not, not super collectible yet, but I can see them being in the future collectible because, again, you know, if uh, no different than like if you're buying a certain year of say like Honda Civic, right? So Honda Civics have become somewhat collectible. The the SI versions. Well, those are what those are those were uh, uh, cars that were bought by kids, ran into the ground and wrecked. So if you can find like, for example, like a 2002 to 2005 um, year uh, Honda Civic uh, SI EP3. And you could find it with an uh, with a clean title and say less than two hundred thousand miles. That car is certainly worth much more than uh, one that had been wrecked because most of them have been. So in that same vein, I see Panerai's. Panerai's were again worn hard as hell, right? Sent in for service, dial swapped. So there are there are fewer and fewer uh, tritium dials out there, and there's people who still own these watches who bought them as everyday wears and are going to send them in for Panerai to Panerai one day and have those dials swapped. So I think tritium dial. Panerized, not pre-Vendomes because they had now, their what day in the, that they in the sun, the essentially. So they ended the tritium for sure 2000 and, uh, or 2004. But uh, if you look, and I've done a deep search, I'm, I can't really find one after 2000 that still has a tritium dial, right? So we're talking uh, A-series, Panerized 1997, okay? B is 98, C is... Uh, is 99, essentially 99, 2000, and then up to G, right? So like 2000, uh, 2003, 2004, essentially, they phased out all the tritium dials. So there was a six-year window, and that was when they were making essentially the, the least amount of watches at that time. Also, they their production had scaled up year after year. So, but a six-year run or five to six-year run of tritium dial Panerai's and probably even less because, again, after, in 2000, they started making Luminova dials and they phased all the tritium dials out. So maybe they had all these tritium dials still are already made in the in the factory or they still had tritium paint or whatever it may be. But it was it was a blend, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a hard cut. Well, it, well, so from 2000 to 2004. So one of like the – I would say like one of the Panerai's I've lusted after for a while and I've had the opportunity to buy sure. it multiple times. Like, you know, I – I love what Panerai's done just over the years, right? And I think that they've actually, I I give them major credit for expanding upon, let's call it, um, expanding into many different product lines, basically utilizing the same shape. And one of the Panerai's that I've lost for years is like a mint Pam 26. And particularly the first version in 1998, where it would have been tritium on the dial. And, you know, right. The, the I'd say the major hallmarks of this watch, though, like the two, is that it's a left-handed watch, meaning the crown and the crown guard are going to be on the left side of the watch as opposed to the right, mm-hmm. and the That's black cool. DLC. And so, you know, I destroy my watches. So one of the reasons I sort of have had the opportunity to buy the watch and I've gone back and forth, and I remember talking to you about it, is that like once the DLC comes off, there's just no going back. So, and I you know, beat my watches to hell. So it's like one of those where it's like, oh, but like, you know, how am I going to feel once the scratches are on there? And generally I don't care. And I actually think mm-hmm. I would enjoy beating it up. Um, but there's something different about DLC than there is about ceramic. It's like, it's a different, it's a different yes. texture. It's a different look. Like it, it's got a different level of color to the, to the overall case. 
Um, and I just, I always enjoyed the way that DLC looked. Just, it always had that downside of scraping off, which is why you see, call it across the gamut, um, watches transitioning to, to ceramic or other materials because it was a nightmare having to fix these watches. As far as the left-handed watch goes, I have a relatively small wrist. And on most of the Panerais that were this size, the crown guard would dig into my wrist. And I found that it was, it was just called moderately uncomfortable enough not to pick one up. But when I tried on a 26, I was like, wow, like I don't have that issue because the crown guard and the crown is just, it's hitting, call it behind the watch almost. So it just had a very different uh, wearing experience. And honestly, like now that I'm talking about it um, um, and I'm, I'm looking at one online, like as we're talking about this, like tomorrow I will be going into full like Pam 26 hunting mode. Like I, I, well, I, 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 and the, yeah. the, the great thing about Panerai hunting is that they're not that hard to find. I mean, if there are some that are hard to find, but they come up and, and it, it feels like the Panerai, um, the, the Panerai market kind of goes in waves. So like, for four or five months, you you won't see any of them, and all of a sudden, five will pop up. There's only, the model by the way, I type in Pam twenty six. There's there's like none posted. This this is and are you looking on Chrono twenty four yeah. or where? So Chrono twenty four, the only two that I see posted are actually the, the re edition two thousand eight version. Right. Yeah, I I think I've only seen in person uh, one Pam twenty six. Um, the original one. So the funny thing about Panerai also, and this is something people have to take into, into account. So wh what I like about Panerai is that they have something called a millisimation on the back of their case back, right? So that's really the serial number uh, of the watcher. This is what I guess Panerai guys or like myself would be, would consider the actual serial number because there's an OP, um, which is the uh, uh, the the movement uh, serial, essentially it, it connotes the movement of the watch. There's the BB number, which is the case number, which is unique to the watch. Um, and then there is the, uh, the millisimation, which is going to be basically what number of how many did they make, right? So for example, in 2008, they made 1000 of these PAM 26 re-editions. So you can have, you know, either they only, I think they made through, 200 of the originals. Is that right? Well, they made, so they made 700 in total of the, they did two year runs of the 26. They made 700 total, right? So 90, the A was series, 200, it looks uh, like. which was like, was 200. Exactly. The B series would have been 500. So I've only ever seen one of the original version, but also, uh, the millisimations are not always accurate because basically what, what that means is they made a th say for, in 2008, they made a thousand. That means they made a thousand cases. Okay doesn't mean that they put together and sold a thousand of these watches. So it's always going to be a thousand or less. And that's how you should look at it. So if they make, for example, one year, they, they have 5,000, they might've only made 3,500 of these watches. And it's crazy when you but think about- But the millisimation is 5,000. It's crazy when you think about, just call it what, like how long ago it was. Like, so 1998 is now mm -hmm. 22 years ago. Like that's when F.P. Jean was first founded. Like this is when the Dubuis that we were talking about were made. So- Panerai like right. really was with this shape and this size ahead of their time in terms of oh, in yeah. terms of the design um, and and actually where they and well, they where caught the way they, they paved the way for the, the the bigger watch 
Right, which then ended up being part of their of their downturn, but they, they're re, they're reorganizing now. But so a great source to figure out which model you want to go after. Say if you, say if you're a guy listening right now and you said, all right, you know, I like Panerai's. Um, I want to maybe I have one or two, and I want to get one that I feel is maybe a little bit more special, a little bit more collectible. PanerySource.com is a great place to look for Panerai information, and they'll have if you click on the Millisimation, you can go through every model from zero to 833 is what they have on there, which they don't have all the current models, but if you're talking about the ones we're talking about, so these are going to be watches that are going to be either A or pre-A, so the, uh, just before, there are some that are listed with an A, but would can be considered pre-A because uh, it would have been pre-Vendome as well, so uh, there is some controversy over the over the um and the uh, the letter connoting the year, for the uh, for Panerai manufacturing, but so you're going to be looking for watches that are basically C and below. So A, B, and C watches. There are some D, E, F, and Gs that have um, tritium dials, but those are even harder to find. So I guess maybe those are even more hidden gems. But again, you're going to find these watches for less than. Look 10, at you dropping the knowledge. You're like going full Tim Maso on me right now. Well, this is this is the only thing I can. <laughs> well, Tim also probably knows more about Panerai than I do, but it's the only I thing I can even more about keep up with him Panerai in terms of watches than we both know about like watches in total. He he knows more about Panerai Luminors than I know about myself <laughs> in general. So. <laughs> That's Tim for you, but but yeah. So uh, hidden gems. I got gems. another one. I got another okay, one. Let's get back to the topic. Well, but let me let me sum up the the Panerai stuff. So what I was saying was tritium dial Panerais. I think will become collectible in the future. Right, but they're not going to be overpriced. They're never going to be a fifty or sixty thousand dollars watch. I don't believe. I think something something that it would have to be a big watch no, raise. Definitely would come not. back. But they have an old world charm. Really ever see and coming I think back? That's but, one of the other features too. Is just right. that. And there's exactly. a value. You can get it for t- less than ten grand for yeah. the most part. All right. What's the next hidden? Okay. Gem so my hidden gem is, and you know, like my hidden gems are the watches that I talk about and just nobody listens to me. Um, but I feel like sure. eventually everybody's like, "Damn, he was right." Um, so. <laughs> Um, so are the Harry Winston Project C's. So Harry ah. Winston, obviously, again, prolific American jewelry brand purchased by the Swatch Group years back. But, you know, known for, let's call it jewelry and ladies' watches. They were never really a men's watch brand. But, you know, before even Swatch took over, they started producing exceptional men's pieces, like ultra high quality in-house movements, pouring a lot of money into it. And, you know, the, one of the, their successes was this, you know, obviously the Opus line, which is very famous and which was started by Max Booser in, in 2001, which they would work with a different and new independent watchmaker every year. But aside from that, you had, so aside from that, though, you had the project Z and so Ron Winston, who was a part of the company at the time, um, was super interested in aerospace, uh, like making metals um, and just different alloys and things that would stand up well over time. And what came from all of this was Zalium, which was very hard. It was you know, resistant, let's call it, to wear, corrosion, chemicals, and you know, it, they just made a whole line around these watches. And... I call it my hidden gem because they were a difficult to make. They didn't make a tremendous amount of them just because they were they were very expensive. But the watches have just appreciated tremendously in value. Like you can pick up these watches, and 
and I depreciate. I said depreciate it tremendously in value. Okay, I just want to make sure everybody, everyone yeah, heard no. that. So they depreciate it tremendously in value, but they're now priced like if you look them up online huh. to where like you can pick up really cool ones for let's call it mid teens, right? Like I, you know, and I just well hold on. I'm looking here. I just did a quick uh, um, Google search, or sorry, eBay search. So the first one that pops up is a is a is just the time and date in Zalium, right? So it's a, sp- a specific metal uh, on a rubber strap, eighty five hundred dollars or best. So price. my favorite iteration of the watch, or Holy one of my favorite iterations crap. of the watch, was the was the Z two, and just because okay. I, I really like the overall dial layout, it wasn't too crazy. Like I don't like the too crazy ones. I like the ones that still look like they're at least somewhat um could be a timeless sports watch but you know a lot of them come on rubber straps like they're just really well made cool sports watches that are different and for me so much about it is a they're recognizable so like if you're into watches you've been seeing Mm -hmm. everybody everybody knows knows what what it is is. because you've been seeing their releases for almost 20 years now and i just think the watches themselves are like as well made as can be and really cool materials recognizable and just a lot of value for what they are and you just don't really see anybody anybody wearing them and and i like that like i like when there's just cool sports watches out there that when you see somebody wearing it you know it's it's like two different people it's the guy that's like thinks like i do and is like wow it's tremendous value for the money it's a really cool watch and then there's the guy that just like literally threw the gauntlet down years back, bought the Project Z, and like, Oof. you know, it's like F you. And I, again, they're both awesome, so. Yeah, no, I, you know what, it's funny. I haven't thought about these watches in a while. I know that um, I for a while, I, I remember seeing them trading uh, a few years back, quite a few of these, but yeah, I haven't seen one in person in a while, but I do remember super comfortable, uh, like ergonomically, They like there was so much care and design putting into put into this watch and it is uh the project z's are super recognizable for what they are so once you see it the first time you never forget that that's a that's a hair so there's a, so like just an example i'm looking at one that's white gold and zallium for posted mm-hmm. at ten seven. like you know so it's just uh you in, can get a project z zallium in the office we call for, that that's white gold and titanium for the same price that you can buy you know uh basic you know it's called pre-owned rolex i don't know yeah submariner so yes a, a pre-owned submariner right now it's, <laughs> the it's, sub will hold its, it's value <laughs> yeah it's true yeah exactly the 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 harry winston will be tough to get rid of so you that's that's a watch you end up keeping for for life but it's i mean it's collectible in the sense that they're it's rare uh you're probably if you're wearing one you probably won't bump into another guy who's wearing one um, and, uh, though your wife might like it too, cause Harry Winston, I mean, I know when I first got into the watch world, I remember looking at a Harry Winston watch. My wife was like, Oh, Harry Winston, are you, are you guys, are you guys a dealer? Do you, can you get me some diamonds? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, your wife will, will probably approve of you, uh, purchasing that watch as well. Yeah. 113495 or 11349 for a Z8, which I like that dial. I think that's beautiful too. There's a lot of special editions. So that is that is a great hidden gem. I agree with you 100%. Um, all right, so in the same vein, so I think we have two more uh, hidden gems to discuss. So we'll make it quick. Um, 
I'd say one that that I think gets super overlooked uh, for the same reason that Harry Winston and really Cartier also. There, I, I think there's a lot of Cartier watches that are hidden gems, but we're not going to discuss that. Uh, but the one I wanted to discuss was L.U. Chopard. So Chopard makes watches. They're a jewelry company first and foremost, right? Um, and they've been making you know uh, uh, Milmiglia watches and race watches for a long time, but they were they they didn't go in house and make real high horology pieces until the early 90s. Um, so L.U. Chopard is named after, uh, was it uh, U, uh, Louis Ulysse uh, Chopard, right? So the, they're the founder of the brand. And uh, in 1993, they decided, the brand decided, hey, listen, we need to start making some in-house movements. We need to make like respectable watches, okay? So they built, their, uh, built a factory in 93, 96. They came out with their first model of uh, in-house movement that was the 9601. So it was an uh, autogra- uh, automatic micro rotor caliber, okay? So right now they have 11 in-house movements. They make everything from just a, a time-only automatic micro uh, rotor, which they love micro rotors. If you like micro rotors, Chopard's the way to go. LUC Chopard. Not just Chopard, but LUC Chopard, which is a whole separate line. It's basically a different brand in my opinion. Um, but uh, they make perpetual calendars. They make perpetual counter chronos. They make tourbillons. Uh, moon phases, everything across the board, and the values are unbelievable. So, for example, the one that I looked at and why, the, why, what I decided this is a hidden gem is they make a perpetual calendar with a moon phase that is a uh, a rotating moon phase. So, not only does the moon change with the with the uh, the date, it actually rotates. Uh, the actual moon itself rotates around an axis at the um, at the six o'clock. This is a watch is a sixty thousand dollar retail price. And it's a watch that pre-owned sells for about twenty thousand bucks, handmade from start to finish, right? In-house movement, handmade cases, handmade dials, everything across the board. Uh, uh, very distinct and robust um, uh, deployment clasps in full gold for twenty thousand dollars. It's absurd. So again, for less than the price of a ceramic Daytona, you can get a full in-house caliber from a brand that's making everything from start to finish. I think they might even make their straps. Yeah, no, so, you know, talking a little bit about, you know, the, the the LUC line, like, you know, Chopard wanted to knock it out of the park. So they, their, you know, their first watch, as you mentioned, um, that launched in 1996, like absolutely no expense was spared. And for me, like, you know, that's one of the really cool things that I, that I like about watchmaking from this era is that no expense was spared, right? Like watches were made as good as they could possibly be. And, you know, the the movement itself took several years to make. Um, it was yeah. a world-class micro-rotor movement. It actually changed um, just, it, it was a prolific movement, not only for the brand, but just in general, and in terms of what other watches, other manufacturers started co- coming out with. Um, and one of the really cool things that I didn't know, and just you know, before we did the podcast, I did a little bit of research, um, mm-hmm. was that Parmigiani was um, very much involved in this project, um, you know, during the infancy. So if you if you go online and you look up yeah. the the original, um, you know, LUC eighteen sixty, the, the watches themselves, the movements are just spectacular. Um, and the watches, they're beautiful, right? Like they're, they're classic, elegant watches, beautiful movements, automatic, the dates at six. Um, and they're just, uh, absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, no, so, you know, the, as I said, they're, they're 
the watches themselves are fantastic. And, you know, I think that, as you said, they're, they're hidden gems. They don't get enough credit. Um, and these are just special cool watches that you can pick up for cool prices. They, they definitely have watches like this have seen a resurgence in recent years. I think by a lot of the, um, the promotion of independent watches, right. Or independent right. watchmakers. So what's happened is, is as more folks have started looking at, call it the Laurent Ferriers of the world, the, uh, you know, this idea of these highly well-made watches from this era have become more prevalent. You see them popping up online and people put really cool straps on them. So, you know, again, if you're looking for a really cool watch that has a lot of history behind it and just is made exceptionally well, again, these, you know, these, uh, you know, original LUC. LUC 1860s are special watches. Yeah, absolutely. And and one more thing about those watches. So if you look at LUC alone, not the Mil Miglias, not, not watches that are just branded Chopard, but LUC Chopard or LU Chopards, they're making about 3,500 to 4,000 watches a year. So that puts them on par in terms of manufacture of about like a Longa or an RM. No, Longa so is more than that. How much is Longa now? I think 5,000 watches. Okay, so maybe. But I just, I, I, I remember... Years ago, I heard 4,000, so I've always sticks in my head. But so again, so they're making less less of these watches. And again, you have to separate LU Chopard from Chopard, in my opinion, because just because they're the same company, they're not really the same company. It's, but like, a brand, are, it's like a brand within a brand. It's like Villaray exactly. and Mont Blanc. Right, exactly. So, uh, you know, low run numbers and, you know, super highly made watches. And again, depreciate down to, you know, embarrassingly low numbers. All <laughs> right, so uh, we're, we're reaching the end of here. The one last watch I wanted to talk about. It's not really a watch. It's it's a movement and you can find it in so many different watches. Um, and that is a, a the Caliber, <clears throat> sorry, the Caliber 11 automatic chrono. So this is uh, one of the first automatic chronos to really uh, be sold in mass market. Um, and the reason why I like this watch and why I think this is a, a hidden gem is that first of all, you can find them. There's no shortage of these watches, right? But for guys who are trying to get into vintage, so I have a lot of collectors, I know you do too, Brian, who started off buying new watches and want to develop, you know, in their collecting uh, lifetime and career and have said, hey, you know, I wanted to get in vintage, but vintage Rolex seems a little weird and now they're so expensive. I don't want to have to spend $20,000 on a watch that I don't know if it's totally original and or $50,000 for a watch or $150,000 for a watch that, you know, who knows really what's going on with the watch. So you, it, it's, it, these are, this is a great step into buying vintage watches, getting comfortable with wearing a vintage watch, being able to care for a vintage watch without having to, number one, break the bank, but also like worry about the watch, you know, somebody noticing you're wearing a, a, a ex very expensive, um, uh, very expensive, uh, um, you know, a vintage Rolex or vintage, uh, you know, vintage Daytona or Paddock or something like that. So uh, when you're looking for a Caliber 11, you can look for that watch in a, uh, from the brands of Hoyer, Breitling, and Hamilton, first and foremost, those are the brands that came out with the with the movement in, in 1969. They all came out at the same time at the uh, the Basel Fair in 1969. And then Hoyer ended up having a relationship with a lot of different brands, so they they sold those movements to Bulova, to Zodiac, to Elgin, to Stowe, all sorts of all sorts of companies, right? So they were able to uh, they were you know spreading that love essentially. But that is their handsome watches. Their 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 sizes are perfect because you're going to find them in 38 millimeter and 40 millimeter cases, right? Uh, so you're going to find them in cases that are going to be modern wearable today, uh, and it's and they are they're fun to look at. They're it's the 
perfect first step into vintage, in my, uh, my opinion. And you can find them for all less than 5000 I mean, there's mm-hmm. the most expensive one you're going to find is $5,000. I mean, you can find it from a brand like Zodiac for like two grand. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, they're sort of highlighting that. I just, I think that, you know, obviously, you know, vintage tech lawyer, vintage lawyer, you know, there was a big, you know, saw a big, a big, a big rise as a obtainable vintage watch, right? Like, so in the vintage watch boom with Rolex skyrocketing, collectors started looking at other options and, you know, lawn jeans uh, got more popular. Uh, Universal Jeudem got more popular. And then obviously, as you said, um, you know, Hoyer, particularly the Caliber 11 got more popular. Um, I myself have, you know, a re-edition from one of their 1964 re-editions, which was done in 1996. Tag Hoyer brought back the Carrera. And, you know, it was super inspired from the original. Like, pretty much the main difference is that the dial no longer said Carrera because there was a conflict with the brand. Um, But... You know, the movement in there was a uh, Lamani Caliber 1873. And just, again, mm-hmm. these watches in general, I think, are just really cool, esoteric, quirky pieces that you can pick up at, at good prices and, again, often go unnoticed, right? Like yeah. there's, so. Find them on eBay, Chrono 24, places like us. We, we, we'll trade in them as well. I mean, I have, personally, I have three of these. I have one from each brand. I have a Hoyer, I have a, a Hamilton Caliber 11, and I have a Breitling Caliber 11, the Chronomatic. So I mean they're they're easy to find and and they're fun and they're they're easy to trade as well. So again, it's 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 a good first step into vintage. And when people are looking for like super collectible vintage watches and you buy you spend twenty five thousand dollars on your first vintage Rolex and you're afraid to wear it because if it's if it needs service it's going to be a nightmare whatever it may be. When you spend twenty five hundred dollars on a, on a vintage watch, you you do get a little bit and you're like, all right, let me be careful. But after you know a few weeks of wearing the watch, you're like, okay, this is great. I can wear this watch. I mean, I have. I mean, I and they can be serviced, and I think that that's another cool oh, yeah. feature too. Is like that that the parts are available to service these watches. So yeah, they make think, so and, many of these watches, and I think that that's important. Out there. Exactly, and I think that's important too when you're investing in a watch like that. It's just that they're easily that they're easily serviceable, and you don't have to worry about if something breaks. Just that it's going to be majorly complicated to get it fixed. Yeah, exactly. So that's it's a good first step, and that's why I think anything with the caliber eleven. Uh, is going to be a handsome watch and certainly a uh, uh, a hidden gem without a doubt. But awesome. all right, I think we're running up on the hour, Brian. Yeah, no, this was great. So we're going to have to uh, think about the next topic. But you know, I really appreciate you bringing me on for the podcast. I you know I love doing these. Um, you know, as always, um, you know, again, if anybody has anything that they want to hear myself or Josh talk about on the show or on the podcast. You know, we're, we're here for you guys. So anything interesting, you know, we're all for it. Yeah, absolutely. Check us out. Make sure you subscribe. Um, we just, uh, did we do the, uh, the all in challenge? The, it was, I think we raised $55,000. Yeah, we did. Yeah. So we participated in the all in challenge with Mitch Schwartz, um, a, you know, he plays for the Kansas city chiefs. He's a big watch Super guy, Bowl big champion. Chef. Yeah. Super Bowl champion. So big, big watch guy, guy really into cooking has Mitch in the kitchen. Um, so, you know, we were, we were super honored to be able to support it and really, you know, help those that are, that are having just major difficulties during this unprecedented time. So, but yeah, yeah, we, we, we donated, um, a, a Daytona along with, uh, you know, Mitch was able to facilitate a trip to Kansas city to, you know, see a chiefs game. 
uh, hang out with him. Like it, it was just a super cool experience. And, you know, we raised $55,000 and it was just awesome. Yeah. So it was fantastic. So, all right. Well, I'm proud to be part of that. And uh, yeah, guys, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcast. Check us out on YouTube. We always have new content. Uh, and uh, I look forward to the next one, Brian. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. All right. No problem. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.